Well, take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Last week we began a message called Salvation, the motivation of our praise as the Apostle Peter is calling for us to praise God. And I'll begin this morning by reading our passage for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Follow along as I read our passage for us. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In J.I. Packer's devotional titled, Your Father Loves You, he talks about worship. And listen to what he says about worship. He says this, To worship God is to recognize His worth or worthiness. To look Godward. To acknowledge in all appropriate ways the value of what we see. The Bible calls this activity glorifying God or giving glory to God and views it as the ultimate end. And from one point of view, the whole duty of man. J.I. Packer is right. He's right. To worship God is to recognize His worth or His worthiness. And to look Godward. To worship is to look Godward. Not to look at the things around us. Not to look at ourselves. But to fix our eyes and our heart above. And to give glory to God who is above. And that's what Peter is encouraging these persecuted believers to do in the opening verses of this letter. But let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Have you ever encouraged a brother or sister who is going through some kind of trial or tribulation or persecution to worship God? Have you ever done that? I think most of us could answer that question, no, we haven't done that. We usually encourage them with things like, I'll be praying for you. Or remember that God is sovereign and that He's with you. Or keep trusting the Lord in the midst of your trial. And all of those are good encouragements and they're not wrong to do. I'm not saying that those are wrong for us to do. But how many of us give encouragement in the midst of a trial by reminding our fellow brothers and sisters to worship God? And specifically, to worship God and to thank Him for what is to come in the future. You see, I think we often focus so much on the here and the now, especially in the midst of a trial, that we forget about what is to come in the future. We forget to worship God during trials because we lose our Godward focus and we begin to focus on self. And what's going on here and now in my life? But Peter is writing to persecuted believers who are going through difficulties and troubles in life. And 
Notice again what he tells them at the beginning of verse 3. Notice what he says to these persecuted believers who are going through difficulties in their life. The beginning of verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said last week, Peter here is calling for these persecuted believers to praise God. You mean worship God in the midst of my trial? Yes. You mean to look upward? To look Godward? In the midst of my difficulties? Yes. In fact, in the Greek, that word be is not there. It's supplied by the interpreters. And so what Peter says here is, Blessed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or another way that we could say this is, Bless the Lord and God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is not just making a statement about God. It's not what Peter's doing here. He's not just saying, Oh, blessed be God. As if it's some kind of statement about God, but it's actually giving praise to Him. Lift your hearts up and bless the Lord. Give praise to Him. And that's what Peter is urging these troubled believers to do. And why is Peter doing this here? Because he's helping these believers to get their eyes off of themselves and their persecution and to get them to where they need to be. He's helping them to get their eyes to be fixed upon where their eyes need to be fixed. That's a very loving thing to do. Think about that. It's a very loving thing to do to someone who's in the midst of trouble. Don't let them keep their eyes on self and their own circumstances. Don't let them do that. Encourage them to look Godward, to remember that God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. It's a very loving thing to do. You see, if they begin to look at self and their own circumstances, what will that do for them? become depressed, worried, anxious. But Peter's saying, no, don't look at self and don't look at the circumstances around you. Get your eyes up. Get your eyes fixed upon God. Get your eyes off of self and look upward to Christ, to the things above. And not just to things above, but also to things of the future. Look to the things of the future, to the time when these trials and tribulations will be over, when they will be done with, when they will be just a faint dot or a speck in the past. Get your eyes upward and get your mind there because that will bring hope. And that will help you to get through the difficult circumstances that you're currently facing. And that's what Peter does here as he calls for these believers who are going through persecution. He is calling them to worship. And last time I gave you the first two of five reasons to praise God. As Peter gives us five reasons here in these three verses. Peter urges these believers to worship and he does so by reminding them of their great salvation. Because when it comes to our salvation, we have much to praise God for, right? Much to praise God for. And last time we said that we should praise God, first of all, because He is merciful. Because our God is merciful. As Peter says in the middle of verse 3 there, who according to His great mercy. We talked about how God has shown us Mercy by meeting our great need. Mercy defined as not getting what you do deserve. 
Or another way that we could define it is kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. You and I were in need of salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God made us alive. God met our spiritual need. God, by His great mercy, gave us life. And for that, we praise Him. We worship Him. And then second, we said that we should praise God because He has saved us. Because He has saved us. The next part of verse 3, Peter says, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. And we talked about what it means to be born again and how being born again is an act of God. It's not something that we do, but it is all of God and none of us. He is the one who causes us to be born again. Just as we had nothing to do with our physical birth, we have nothing to do with our spiritual birth. It is all of God. He has caused us to be born again. We've been born again or born from above. And when we were born again, we then responded in repentance and faith. But we were only able to respond by repenting of our sin and trusting in Christ because God first made our hearts alive. God took our dead hearts and He made them alive. He caused us to be born again. And because He's merciful and because He's caused us to be born again, we should praise Him no matter what the circumstances are that we are in. But Peter doesn't stop there. Peter continues to tell them of this great salvation that they have been given. And not only has he told us what God has done, what God has done in the past, but because of what God has done, Peter now is pointing these troubled believers to consider their future and praise God for what's in store in the future. You see, our salvation is not just what God has done in the past, but included in our salvation is also what God will do for us in the future. That's all encompassed in our salvation. Oftentimes we just focused on the past. Remembering what God did at a moment of time when He saved us. And we think about salvation as only that. But salvation is so much more than that. That happened in a moment of time in the past, but encompassed in that salvation is all that God is going to do for us in the present circumstances in which we are in and also in the future. All that's in store for us in the future. Which leads us to a third reason that we should praise God. And that is because He has given us hope. Because He has given us hope. Notice the end of verse 3. Peter says, To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What Peter does here is he describes for us what that new life looks like. As those who are born again, what does this new life look like? Well, it's a life that's filled with hope, right? We were saved at a moment in our past, but at that moment we were given hope. And for the rest of our lives, we have hope. We have hope. Remember who Peter's writing to here. He's writing to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Believers who are being persecuted for their faith. But what do they need during this time of trial and tribulation? They need what? They need hope. They need hope. And what does Peter remind them of? He reminds them that they have hope because they have been born again. Because you have been born again in the past, you now have hope. You realize that, church? We are all sitting here as people, children of God, who have hope. 
that world out there, they have no hope. But we here, as brothers and sisters who are in Christ, we have hope. We have something that they don't have. Why? Because we've been born again. Because of the work that God has done in us. Because of what God has done in our past. Peter's writing to these believers to remind them of this. That they have hope for the future, even though their present circumstances are hard. Even though their present circumstances are tough. Even though they're going through trial and tribulation, remember their future. Pastor and hymn writer Paul Gerhardt lived in the 1600s. He went through many trials in his life. His father died when he was 12, and his mother died two years later. He and his wife also lost their first child in infancy. And only one of his five children made it out of childhood. He had a difficult life. A lot of trials. During the Thirty Years' War, he and his family were forced to flee from their home. One night as they stayed in a small village inn, homeless and afraid, his wife broke down and cried openly in despair. To comfort her, Pastor Gerhardt reminded her of Scripture promises and about God's provision for them. But then, going out to the garden to be alone, he too broke down and wept where he felt that he had come to his darkest hour. But soon afterward, Pastor Gerhardt felt the burden lifted. And he took his pen and he wrote a hymn that has brought comfort to many people. The hymn is titled, Give to the winds thy fears. And listen to what he wrote in the first stanza of this hymn. He said this, Give to the winds thy fears. Hope and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. God shall lift up thy head. Through waves and clouds and storms, He gently clears the way. Wait thou His time, so shall the night soon end in joyous day. What did Paul Gerhardt do? He looked to the future, to the joyous day that he knew was coming. And it was that that brought him hope. To the joyous day when all of his trials and troubles would be over. It brought him hope. It brought him hope. The truth of the glorious future brought him hope. And what Peter is telling us here is that because we have been born again, we have hope. In fact, listen to what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, before we were born again, we were living without hope. We were completely hopeless. But now, because we've been born again, we have hope. And this hope is not a dead hope, but notice what Peter, how he describes this hope. He says it's a living hope. That is, it's a hope that will continue on even in the midst of trial and tribulation. That's what Paul Gerhardt knew. He knew he had hope because he had been redeemed by God. You see, no one can take this hope from us. Because it's rooted and grounded in the living God. 
It's a living hope. It's not an empty hope or a deceptive hope or a false hope. But this is a living hope. And this is not some kind of fingers crossed kind of hope as you hear from the world. Oh, I hope. I hope this will, I hope that will happen. That's not the kind of hope that we have. This is a, a fixed hope of something good in the future. As one commentator says, in the New Testament, this word hope always relates to a future good. It always relates to a future good. And we can be certain of this future good. And how can we have the certainty of this living hope? Well, look at the grounds of this hope. Peter says at the end of verse 3, notice what he says there. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is grounded in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now let me ask you, did Christ rise from the dead? Did he rise from the dead? Yes, he did. We are certain of that, right? We know that to be true. The grave is empty. They went back to the tomb and he wasn't there because he rose from the dead. And we are certain of that. We know that Christ is risen from the dead. And because we know that, then you can be certain not only of your present salvation, but because of Christ's death, you can be certain about your future salvation as well. Certain of it. No questions asked. Jesus rose from the dead. And therefore, I know my future because I'm in Him. Our hope is sure. Our hope is anchored. It's grounded in the resurrection of our Savior. That is why Resurrection Sunday is so important for us as believers. Because we celebrate His resurrection. We are sure. We are anchored. We have hope. Our hope is sure. It's anchored, and it's anchored in the past by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. It's anchored in the present because Jesus is alive today. Amen? And it's anchored in the future because Jesus is coming again. Just as we read in John chapter 14, right? What did Jesus tell his disciples? I'm coming again. I go to prepare a place for you, but don't worry, guys. I'm coming again. He's promised us that. And our hope is anchored in the future because Jesus has promised that He is coming again. How do we know that He's coming again? Well, not only because He told us He would, but also because His resurrection affirms that. He's alive today and He will come back in the future. And so what should be our response then? even in the midst of difficult circumstances in our lives? We should worship God. We should worship Him. We should cry out, as, as Peter does at the beginning of his letter, writing to these saints who were going through trials and tribulation, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It should be the cry of our heart. As we think about the living hope that we have in Christ. You see, it's our future salvation and the hope that we have that motivates us to praise God. It should motivate, motivate us to praise God. And that's what Peter is after here. He wants these troubled believers to praise God in the midst of trial because they have a future hope. And as we look to the future, there's a fourth reason that we should praise God. Fourth reason that we should praise God is because He has given us an inheritance. Because He has given us an inheritance. 
Look at verse 4. We finally made it. Verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now I want you to see that word inheritance there. Notice that word inheritance. That's the key word here. Think about this. Who is Peter writing to? He's writing to aliens who were scattered about on the earth going through tribulation. But is that their inheritance? Is this earth? And the place that they are living, is that their inheritance? Is their inheritance this world that they're presently living in? It's not. They have a heavenly inheritance awaiting them in the future. Which also means that they are heirs of God, right? Because who gets the inheritance? Only those who are heirs of the inheritance. You see, as those who don't belong to this world, but belong to the family of God, our inheritance is heaven. That's our inheritance in the presence of God forever. That's our future, church. That's where we are headed. As we even sang this morning, we're just pilgrims here that are passing through. Our inheritance is heaven where we will be with God forever. And just to give you a glimpse into what this inheritance will be like, Peter gives us three descriptions of our future inheritance. And if you notice here, he looks at it from the negative perspective of what our future inheritance won't be like. We all know what this world is like, but our inheritance is not like this world. Notice what he says there. Notice he says, number one, it is imperishable. Our future inheritance is imperishable. This word imperishable refers to what is not corruptible, not liable to death, or not subject to destruction. It won't undergo decay. Think about all of the, all of the things that decay around us. In fact, on your way home this afternoon, just find a car with some rust on it. It's easy to find. They're all out there, <laughs> all over the road. Find a car with some rust on it. And then thank God and praise Him that your future inheritance won't decay. It won't rust like all of this stuff around us. Praise Him and thank Him for your future inheritance that won't have anything imperishable. Like our rusty cars. Matthew 6.20 tells us, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Heaven is our future where there will be no destruction. Heaven won't decay we won't decay. Nothing will be destroyed in heaven. But it will be a glorious place where nothing will ever be lost. Number two, Peter tells us that our inheritance is undefiled. It is not only imperishable, but it is also undefiled. That is, nothing will be stained there. It will be unstained and unpolluted. The root word there for undefiled, the root word there is defiled, which means to color something by painting it or staining it. But Peter is telling us here that it will be stain-free. Heaven will be a place that will be stain-free. And this word, undefiled, carries with it the picture of being morally and spiritually free from stain or uncontaminated by sin. Think about that, church. No contamination of sin. That's our future inheritance. Heaven is a place that has no stain of sin. It is sin-free. Which means there will be no threat of evil there. 
no threat of evil, no threat of persecution. And think about how encouraging that is for these believers who are going through persecution. When you get there, there's no more threat of that. What is he giving them? Hope. Hope. That's your future. Future where there will be no threat of evil. No sin. It'll be nothing like this evil world. And then number three, he says it will not fade away. Will not fade away. And this describes the beauty of our inheritance. Every year there are some peony flowers that bloom right next to our mailbox. And people, as they're walking their dogs or walking by the house there, they will comment on how beautiful they are. But they've already blossomed, and they're gone. They had their time. They faded away. The beauty is no longer there. But in heaven, nothing will fade away. There will be no beauty that will ever fade away in heaven. The word in the Greek for not fade away means not losing pristine quality or character. It's unfading. And the picture of this word here is of a lovely flower that never withers or dies. Heaven will never lose its majesty or splendor. Never. It will not fade away. One commentator comments on these three descriptions of heaven and he says this our inheritance is death proof sin proof and time proof in its internal nature it is free from the germs of destruction in its outward appearance it is untouched by the stain of sin in its abiding character it is without reduction of its beauty That's our future inheritance. That's what we have to look forward to. That's the hope that we have. And notice that Peter tells us that this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. It is personally assured for all believers. The Greek word there, reserved, is a perfect passive participle. Let me get a little nerdy with you here. The perfect tense there of the word means that our inheritance was placed under safekeeping and is currently being preserved for us. And the passive voice implies that God is the one who is preserving it. God is the one who is doing the action. He is the one who has reserved our inheritance for us. He made the reservation. We don't have to call ahead to heaven to make a reservation. He made it for us. He made it for us. And He's the one who's watching over it. And He will keep an eye on it. Which means it cannot be lost. It won't go away. It's being kept by our Heavenly Father. As one commentator says, the inheritance is certain because of God's watchful care. That's the certainty of it. It's under His watchful care. Which means we don't have to worry whether our future inheritance is going to fade away. You see, a lot of people today, they worry about their future inheritance here on this earth. Think about that. But we as believers don't have to worry about our future inheritance because it is secure, it is safeguarded by our God and it will not fade away. Listen church, that's what God has done for us. That's what God has done for us. That's our future hope. It's not this world, but it's heaven. Our future hope is heaven, a perfect place that God has reserved for us because we are His elect children. Because we are chosen by Him. 
And what should that reality do in our hearts? It should cause us to burst forth in praise and worship, realizing that this world is not our home, but our future home is an infinitely greater place where we will be free from death and sin and troubles that we face in this life. You see how Peter's encouraging us to get our eyes off of this world and to get them Godward into the future? You see that? That's the encouragement there. Look up to heaven. Look out to the reality of heaven that is ours in Christ Jesus. And when we do that, then we'll be able to face the trials of today and the troubles of tomorrow because we know what is in store for us in the future. That's how we'll be able to make it through the trials and the tribulations that we go through because we understand our future hope, the glorious hope of an inheritance that is beyond this world. And that should cause our hearts to burst forth in praise and adoration of our God. That should be the motivation and the fuel of our praise. And so, just to review, we should praise God, first of all, because He is merciful. Then, because He has saved us. Number three, because He has given us hope. Then, because He's given us an inheritance. And finally, we should praise God because He protects us to the end. Because He protects us to the end. Look at verse 5 and notice what Peter says there in verse 5. He says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That word protected there is a, it's a military word. And it has the picture of people needing protection from the enemy. And again, this word protective is in the passive voice. This is what we call divine passive. It's divine passive, meaning God is the one who is doing the action. God is the one who is protecting us. It's God who is doing His work to protect us from the enemy. We don't have to come up with some kind of military strategy to try and protect ourselves from the enemy. We don't have to find the strength in ourselves to try and guard ourselves from our adversaries. No, we are protected by the power of God. And there's no greater power in the universe than His power. None. It's a power that is outside of us. It's not our own, but it's God's power. Now, although we don't have to come up with the strength to try and protect ourselves from the enemy, there is a part that we play in this. What do we do? We must have faith. We must have faith. That's why Peter says that we're protected by the power of God through faith. Faith is the means or the instrument of God's protective power. And yet, at the same time, who is the one who gives you that faith? God does. He supplies that faith. One commentator says the proper human response is to recognize our own inadequacy and in every circumstance, by faith, ask Him to shield us. That's what we do through faith. We ask Him to shield us. And He is faithful to do that as we trust in Him and await that final salvation. Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's a glorious verse. Our God is there to protect us in our present troubles. In the troubles that we presently face, that we go through in this lifetime, He will be there to protect us all the way to the very end. Now, here is what is interesting. What is it that brought persecution on these believers in the first place? 
What brought persecution upon these believers? Their faith in God. It was their faith in God that brought persecution upon them. So what would be the temptation in the midst of these trials? To run. To run from that faith. To leave that faith, right? Then I don't have to endure the persecution anymore. But what is Peter saying here? He says you're protected by God through faith. Do you want to have protection of God in the midst of the trials and persecution that you're going through? Then keep up that faith. Keep trusting in Him. Don't give up that faith in God. Don't stop trusting in Him. But keep on trusting Him, knowing that He has all power to shield you and protect you from your enemies. That faith there is the means by which He protects you. And yet at the same time, He provides that faith to you as you keep trusting in Him. What a glorious truth. And as you trust in Him, He will protect you all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Don't give up. Keep trusting. Which is what Peter says at the end of verse 5. Notice what he says there. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What does Peter mean by this? He's referring to that final aspect of salvation when we receive that inheritance that he had just talked about in verse 4. And we can be confident that our inheritance is ours because we have been born again. We can be confident that that's ours in the end. That's our final salvation. In fact, listen to the confidence of Paul as he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.18. He says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. And listen to how Paul responds. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How does Paul respond as he thinks about God bringing him to His heavenly kingdom? What does he do? He worships. He worships. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. It causes His heart to burst forth in praise. Because He's confident that God will bring Him home safely. And all of us will be brought home safely to His heavenly kingdom in the end. All of us will. Now, we must understand what Peter means by salvation here. Notice what he says there in verse 5. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, in salvation there is a past, present, and future experience. There's a past, a present, and a future experience. In the past, we were saved from the guilt of sin when we repented and trusted in Christ. In the present, we are being saved from the power of sin as we allow Christ to work in us. And in the future, we will be saved from the very presence of sin when Christ returns. And that future aspect is what Peter has in mind here. He's talking about the future aspect of our salvation. Remember I said oftentimes we just think about salvation as something that happened to us in the past, right? But we have to think about the present salvation that we have. That we are presently being saved. Guarded and protected. That we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves of Christ. And then there's a future aspect of our salvation. That is still to come. Where we will be in heaven with Christ forever. That's all a part of salvation. And it's that future aspect that Peter has in mind here. Notice what he says there though. Notice that word ready. You see that there? For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know what that word ready means? It means that 
everything that is needed and necessary for salvation has been accomplished. It's been accomplished. It's finished and ready. There's nothing that is to be done that needs to be done in preparation for this salvation. It's all been accomplished. It's all done. There aren't some finishing final touches that we have to do or that God has to do. It's ready. It's finished. That's why Christ cried out. What did he say? It is finished. It is finished. It's finished and perfect and unchangeable and it's kept for us by God himself. And in the last time when Christ returns, it will be finally realized. Then it will be realized. It's ready now. Nothing else needs to happen. But then it will be realized. And our bodies will rise when Christ returns. And we will rise perfect, glorified, and meet our Savior in the air. We will be glorified and we will be with Christ forever. That's our future hope. An inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us who are protected by God's power because He chose us in eternity past and by His grace and by His mercy we have been born again. And what should our response be to this great truth? Worship. Worship of Him. In closing, I want to encourage you with the lyrics of a, a worship song that was written by Sovereign Grace Music. It's the lyrics of the song titled, When We See Your Face. And here's what this song says. Though the dark is overwhelming, and the brightest lights grow dim. Though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men. Though the wicked never stumble and abound in every place. We will all be humbled when we see your face. And the enemies were fighting. Those without and those within will be underneath our feet. To never rise again. All our sin will be behind us. Through the blood of Christ erased. And we'll taste your kindness. When we see your face. And then the chorus says this. We will see. We will know. Like we've never known before. We'll be found, we'll be home, we'll be yours forevermore. What a glorious truth. That's worship. That's worship. That's a song that embraces these verses in 1 Peter 1. It's looking to the future and what is to come because of the great salvation that you and I have been given. May these truths cause us to look Godward and to look to the future remembering what is in store for us because of the great salvation that you and I have been given. Not because of anything that we've done, but only because of the great mercy of our God. And may these truths motivate us to get our eyes off of self and this world and look up and look to the future. 
as we worship him in praise and adoration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great inheritance that we have in Christ because of what you have done in our lives to redeem us. So we just read the lyrics of this glorious song. We will see, we will know like we've never known before. We'll be found and we'll be home. We'll be yours forevermore. Lord, we thank you for the promise of a future inheritance that will be nothing like this world that we're living in now. But it's a place that is imperishable and undefiled and it will never fade away. Father, may these great truths that we have learned from you and your word, may it cause our hearts to worship you. Father, may we leave from this place here this morning looking Godward and remembering the future that we have in store for us. A future that is guarded and protected by you, by your power. A future that we know that we have because of your great power. You will guard us and protect us all the way to the very end. Lord, we thank you for that future inheritance that we have. And help us to live our lives in light of this great truth, worshiping you with our lives, living out the truths of your word and obedience to you out of a heart of worship because of what you have done for us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.